This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Evening, Hearts of Oak. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, looking at the midterms and what has just happened across the pond over in the States for UK viewers. And if you're based over in the States, you're living what's happening over there. And it is an absolute honor to have back once again, Steve K. Bannon from War Room. Steve, thank you so much for your time once again. Thank you. Love being on Hearts of Oak. Great to have you in, of course, uh, War Room at 10 a.m. Eastern Time every day, which is, what, 3 p.m. UK time. And I never know whether it's just a 5 o'clock or, and or a 6 o'clock program you do. It's, uh, we do 5 and 6. On, on 6, we shift over to Lindell TV, but you can still get us on Getter, so we're streaming on Getter Live. But we shift, we go, we're on three hours a day of Real America's Voice and then one hour a day on uh, Lindell TV, but we're nonstop on Rumble and on, uh, on Getter. Well, I've certainly enjoyed watching you, and I know you jumped on with Charlie Kirk and, and Jack Posobich giving um, your thoughts with them. But for here in the UK, we obviously are getting everything that the mainstream media are giving us. Uh, we don't have anything alternative. You have, I guess, Newsmax and OAN. Uh, it is a place like War Room that we are able, wherever you are in the world, to get the information. And the media, of course, are telling us the red wave hasn't happened. Uh, let me just bring up, this is, uh, this is the moment the House, House of Congress, you've got the House, you've got the Senate, and of course you've got the Governors. Uh, those three are probably the main races. Um, and it looks all nice and red. Uh, but you want to let us know, because we're hearing it hasn't happened, it's fizzled out, the wave never happened, it's game over, people actually want Joe Biden. Uh, what's your perspective of what nothing, is nothing, happened? Nothing, nothing could be farther from the truth. The, the truth is, did we win uh, 40 or 50 seats? We didn't. But we're picking up at least uh, 11 to 20 and maybe even more if we can close these are out there. That gives us the majority. The people uh, the people wanted the House to be taken back by the Republicans. So that there could be no doubt. And we're going to be in control. In fact, there's a lot of stuff happening in Washington right now. Number one, we've got to close all of these seats. There's a lot of knife fights going out there to make sure we close House seats. There's Senate seats up from Alaska to Nevada to Arizona and Georgia that could give us a 52-48 majority in the Senate, so they've given us the Senate, too, if we can close these in Nevada. And uh, Alaska's already in the in the bag, but uh, or at least for a Republican, not, not for the one we want. Uh, but Nevada and Arizona are very close. Those votes are still being counted because they're trying to drag it out so the left can get a, a big media narrative. Then we got some governorships and secretaries of state, so th this thing's very in play. At the same time, two things are happening. People are starting to come back to D.C. now because this whole thing about the leadership vote, uh, the leadership vote will take place. Uh, leadership vote will take place immediately upon returning, both for McConnell and for uh, and for McCarthy. For, in particular, the speaker is uh, urgently important. That all takes place over the next couple of days. The official thing will be on the the fifteenth for him to get the majority of the uh, of the conference. At the same time, you have this lame duck. Remember, Nancy Pelosi were kicked out. They may not take control of this for ten years. So all these deals in the lame duck, where they're going to have a session starting next week that'll go up to Christmas or maybe even to New Year's with this Congress, where they're going to try to have another orgy of spending uh, and all types of things, anti-Trump, anti-MAGA, uh, more madness about the Ukraine war. So 
that's all happening. And th this could be some of the biggest spending bills or some of the biggest uh, debt ceiling increases we've ever had. Uh, and then at the same time, you've got this whole thing with uh, the leadership fights, President Trump's thinking of announcing next week, and you've got this Georgia campaign. Uh, first off, you're going to have other campaigns that are just trying to, we're trying to close the deal to make sure they win in the uh, counting rooms. And then you've got the Georgia uh, Senate uh, campaign that's now been moved up to December 6th. So you have four or five things happening simultaneously. And what we're trying to tell people, that's where we're getting down into the details of all of them. It's all important for MAGA and for the populist nationalist movement to basically win and have aspects in each one of them of which we're, we're doing. But don't let your audience believe the mainstream media. We control the House as of now, and that's not going to change. We control the Senate as of now, and that would only change by some miracle they pull out in Georgia. So people are trying to understand in Nevada and in Arizona, unless they cheat us in the counting room, those two Senate seats will be announced in the next two or three days as being Laxalt in Nevada and, uh, and, uh, and Brother Blake Masters in, uh, in Arizona. So people should know. And that's why I say, hey, if you want the reality, go to come to War Room every day or go to our website and, and check it out. But you'll get a, a dose of reality here. We're, we're not just in the fight. Did we have the crushing death blow up and down to the Democratic Party? No, but we won. And I'm telling you, we won big at school boards. We won big at local elections. We won big at state legislatures. Uh, we won amazing governorships. We took the House and we took the Senate. So it was a it was a. It was a great night. It was not a historic night. We could have actually de delivered a death blow to the radical Democratic Party. Didn't quite get there, but now we have to deliver. And that's the other thing. The agenda of what's 2023 is already being uh, drawn up. We had Jim Banks on today to go through what that agenda was going to be. And by the way, there are unbridgeable gaps uh, in the agenda. One of them, you know, is obviously energy. It should be important to your UK audience because you're over in COP27 right now. Uh, with your prime minister talking about the concept. They're actually having a conversation to show that they would be interested about reparations, that the United Kingdom would be paying hundreds of billions of dollars in reparations to third world countries that would impoverish you even more than you've already been impoverished. And Nancy Pelosi's heading over there right now, as is, uh, as is John Kerry, the official delegate, to actually to get into these discussions of, uh, of people actually having being open to uh, having a discussion about paying, in, in the United States case, trillions of dollars of reparation to the third world. Um, I just want to touch on, back to the results before I get onto all those messes, but this was a, a great piece I came across in CNN and looking at the midterms comparing 2018 and 2022. And this was a different narrative that the CNN are putting out, but it's not on their front page. You kind of have to delve deep. And it shows that by gender, men and women, and there are no others outside that, so those are the two we have, that actually the Republicans increased uh, their share of the vote. Um, and it goes through every other, if you go down here by age, this was also really interesting. It wasn't just the older demographic, but actually, even in the 18 to 29-year-old, the Gen Z, that the Republicans increased their share of the vote. And the 2018, they were behind the Democrats by 35 points. Now they're behind by 28 points. Uh, but across the board, it seemed to be positive. And I guess the confusion is why that doesn't, was it just very good, but it should have been, could have been slightly better. Um, what's the deal when I These guess. Are tough, the okay, but all, all the ones, the difference between, let's say we end up with 15 seats, right? 
the difference between the 15 and the 35, the incremental 20 are all on the knife's edge. These were all, this was all knife's edge stuff that we lost those seats, but we lost them by under like 1% or under one and a half percent. These were all hotly contested. So remember, we expanded the battlefield to go up to as many as 50 seats. I think people were contesting it. They had another 24 they were thinking of, but there were 50, 60 seats. Those incremental seats, it's not like we, we if, if it just cut slightly the other way, you would have had 40 or 50 seats. And that's what the Democrat, that's what that analysis underneath shows you where the votes were. That's what we increased all these votes and made it, which was uh, once uncompetitive, competitive. Just so your audience understands, let me pull the camera back for one second and make sure you just understand some math here. Because we always refer back to the Gingrich Revolution in 1994 and the Tea Party Revolution in 2010. Just your audience has to understand, they came off bases of 173, basically 173, 174 members of Congress at the time in the Gingrich Revolution in, in the House and in the Tea Party. So those times when you look at these 40 and 50 seat pickups, right? That was off 174, really just got you into the 210s, the 220s. Today, we started off the election on, on the morning of Tuesday. We had 212 seats. We picked up 15 seats in, uh, in Trump's defeat, right, in uh, the big steal in, 2000, in, in, 20, in 2020. This is one of the reasons we know Trump didn't lose. It is um, virtually mathematically impossible to pick up because they thought they were going to pick up four or five seats in 2020. We picked up 15 seats. Okay, so we started off a base of 100, uh, 212 which is what, 37 more than they had in 70. So we already had 37 seat increase that had been built up over time. That's when you look at these, when you look at these numbers, we could have gotten to an historic, I think it was 252. That was in our grasp. We fell short of that. That incremental 30, that was right there in our grasp. And that's what I told everybody it's right there to have. It just cut the other way in certain situations, right? And these are very, very tight. Like for instance, Lauren Boebert, right now i think is up by like 20 votes in <laughs> in it hasn't been called it won't be called uh for probably a couple four or five days and they'll go to a recount mm. uh joe kent's the same way joe kent is, is slightly down but there's a hundred thousand ballots out there counting like twenty five thousand a day he's going to win because they're game day votes and we are the trump movement are game day voters that's probably going to go through the weekend also so there's still a bunch more we could win another five or ten i think if we just stay maniacally focused. But people in the audience should understand, when you say the red wave didn't happen, it crested. But here's the thing, we still took control. Our system is that, hey, if you got control, you got control. So we have control of the House. Even CNN, these people are putting up now, it's 222 or 223 to 211 or 222 to 213, depending on how you calculate. But that gives us control. Everything over 218 be like having commons. We have it. And, uh, and we're going to use it. The question is now, how do you actually use that and how do you do, how do you really, you know, shut down the Biden regime, particularly with all the, the, the madness that they want to have? These are tough fights. Don't, don't, I'm not trying to downplay the fact that it's, um, it's, it's going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. For your audience also, just some more inside baseball. Here's the theory of the case. There are many people in the Trump movement, particularly Matt Gates and some of these fire breathers in the House Freedom Caucus, that always wanted to never have a majority more than eight or ten. Because that gives the that gives the leverage in this in this uh, body to the House Freedom Caucus. The House Freedom Caucus is probably 50, 60, 70 of the most hardcore of the Trump movement, the constitutionalist Republicans, the populists, etc. On this House Freedom Caucus, 
you have to have those. If you only have an eight to ten uh, vote majority, eleven majority, they become the they become the the leverage. They become the key to the leverage, and they are actually looking now to force McCarthy out as speaker. For them, this worked out fine. Now McCarthy wanted twenty to thirty. My theory, of the case was a little different. At, at the thirty and above, you're getting incremental members of Congress that are Trump, you know, supporters, rabid Trump supporters. So it'd have been fine to have a bigger conference and have more Trump supporters. But what I do know now, as it stands today, Kevin McCarthy's speakership is really predicated upon support from the Freedom Caucus, and they've been upfront. They're only going to give that support to make him speaker if he is committed to confront the Biden administration. So that's one of the big parts of the drama that's playing out here behind the scenes. Obviously, the Senate, the exact same thing. Now, remember, just layer on top of that, this lame duck, that a lot of these guys, particularly in the Senate, are gone for their careers. They're never coming back. Nancy Pelosi's never coming back. The senior leadership's probably never coming back. They want to cut every deal they have to cut prior to Christmas to make sure they get payoffs for their donors, payoffs for their corporate sponsors, for the lobbyist buddies they have, paydays for themselves. So this is going to be an orgy of deal cutting and spending like has never been seen before. That You have to stand the breach and try to stop that. On top of it, come all the massive issues that come with you on January 3rd, which is 10 weeks away. So people should understand there are five or six big currents going on here simultaneously while we're still grappling. And that doesn't even layer upon the performative drama of the DeSantis versus versus Trump, uh, you know, civil war, which is obviously quite real and quite obvious. But my point is that if you don't get the the important subterranean stuff right right now, that that performative that performance art's not going to not going to matter. T- tell us about the Republicans have got in because it's irrelevant if you get a majority if those in place are not good candidates. And where is the line between those who want to look after the Republican Party and keep it going, the establishment figures, and actually America first? Is there a clash and who wins in that? And does that mean it's not a united party? I think a, a, a big bellwether of this, you remember House of Cards was the drama of uh, Kevin Spacey. Yep. It was called here. It was, ba- it was predicated upon a a British UK yeah. uh, UK series quite popular. I tell everybody to go back and harken back to that in, in the in the role there, at least in the U.S. version. Kevin Spacey played a uh, the whip, the guy who's got to make sure the votes are there for any, and he's totally ruthless and unscrupulous and amoral. Um, Jim Banks, we had him on the show today, is a pretty tough uh, guy from Indiana. Is running for the whip. He's pure America first. He had our back on a lot of stuff in the White House. It'll be very, you'll, I think the picking of the whip uh, will be quite, uh, quite emblematic of how, um, of how tough this is going to be. The guy that ran the campaigns for all this, Tom Emmers from Minnesota, is not quite as America first or Trumpian, and uh, he's also running for whip. The selection of the whip, I think, will be a big indicator. If the more established figures pick Emmer, then you're going to have less confrontation. That means the grassroots is going to man the barricades again. The one thing about our audience and look, a lot of people get tired and say, hey, I can't just take anymore. I got to take a rest. That's fine. But the, the, the core of our audience is so hardcore. Mm. They're fighting this every day. And we understand we have big battles now in these leadership fights. Also, the McCarthy leadership fight. People should not downplay that he's in, he's in real trouble. And one of the reasons he's in real trouble, he didn't deliver the size of the victory that people anticipated and raised money for and were anticipating. And it's just not about managing expectations. The reality is, given a smaller majority, he has now 70 of that 200 and let's say 25 
75 are somehow me uh, members of or cohorts of or have allegiance to what we call the House Freedom Caucus, which is probably the most Trumpian uh, element in that. And that means for him to be declared speaker, he needs those votes. He needs basically virtually almost all those votes. Uh, and that could be tough. And they're going to make big demands. You see today, uh, I've put it up on my Russ vote, who was Trump's uh, Office of Management and Budget after uh, or his last one. Very good guy, super Trumpian. He put out a basically a Twitter stream that's up on Getter right now about how uh, McCarthy doesn't deserve this. He can't deliver. So you have active political metaphorical knife fights going on in counting rooms throughout the country to secure these votes. And you have them in back here in, in the, our capital as people come back about these leadership fights. What, what does it mean looking forward uh, to 2023 where the real battle happens moving into 2024? Um, how do you kind of see it playing out? Is is it a confident Republican Party that goes in saying, right, we now, we've taken a couple of steps towards victory, we can now complete this, and coming along with a good agenda that connects with the public? How do you see kind of 2023 play out? Well, first off, I think 2023, both the United Ki Europe, the United Kingdom, and the, the United States is going to be a economic and financial firestorm. Yeah. So, look, I, I my theory of the case is quite simple. We're, we're equivalent to the 1930s. And we're making many of the same mistakes as in the 1930s. We're, we're in the, the, there's a great book written about the 1930s called The Dark Valley. I strongly recommend everybody pick up a softback copy of that and read about the mistakes that were made and what happened, principally driven by economy and capital markets. Um, this is what I see happening. I think 2023, if you think we've gone through challenging times or fascinating times or times of intense politics, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I keep telling people, all the, all, everything that's happened beforehand has all been ex extraordinarily easy. The tough stuff's about to happen. And number one is that you just can't continue on the fake money machine. You just can't continue to print money. The preamble to what's about to happen is what happened in the United Kingdom uh, a couple of months ago on when uh, Liz Trust put out this, uh, this uh, and I would say it in a family uh, thing, a masturbatory fantasy of a, a economic plan that the uh, capital markets immediately puked on. Hmm. Um, and look, I'm all for tax cuts and growth, but I'm also for being an adult and being in the real world. And her thing was a fantasy that, because you have to come to grips with the fact that we've allowed the administrative state, uh, particularly in the United Kingdom and the United States, to grow to a, a beast that was never envisioned by at least our founders and framers or our people, and I think a large extent to the people in England that don't realize how big this thing's gotten. But not just that, it has to be fed, it has to be financed. We've gotten off doing that from the financial crisis of 2008 by just having the Bank of England and the United States print money, right? And we've had a very easy time of just doing that. That Those days are ending and they're ending rapidly. And, and one of the reasons you have this economic turbulence is that the days of easy money are over. When the, when the, when the, the real world implications that start to set in on people uh, it's going to be quite catastrophic for the simple fact that you're going to see the collapse of the bond market, which you already basically have. You're going to see the collapse of pension funds. You're going to see the collapse of the real estate market. Uh, and this is all going to one thing domino is going to lead to the next. So 2023, you can't look at the people just and I remember you were a great example of someone that looks at something. To do, and it's not bad to look at things through a political prism. You can't look at political prism unless you understand that the great movable forces of that are economics, 
capital markets and demographics. Okay, those three big, huge for and technology. That, those have massive forces underneath that lead to political decisions on the top. And obviously the political decisions affect that, but you can't do one without the other. 2023 is gonna be one of the most fascinating, turbulent, awful years in modern world history. So just strap in. And so I keep telling people that in 2024 and the horse rates around the same time, I said, stop it. It's childish, it's immature. We need to set through, particularly wanna win, exactly what we have to focus on now. And quite frankly, people in the UK had been as disciplined around what Nigel Farage and quite frankly, yeah. Breitbart did in the Brexit situation. Yeah. You wouldn't have a globalist uh, heading a Tory government. And the Tories wouldn't be as terrible as they are because to me, they're kind of uh, unanchored in reality. They just kind of drift around. You know, they, 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 they have, no, have never confronted uh, this situation with the COP27. In fact, you have a Tory prime minister, I think is going down there. Uh, what those people talk about there is insanity. It's never been confronted by hard science and hard reality. It's going to lead to a bitter, cold winter in the United Kingdom and the rest of Europe. But not just that, they're going next level. They're talking about actually you guys shoveling hundreds of billions of dollars, United States shoveling trillions of dollars and what they refer to as reparations to third world dictators. And they're actually engaging in these conversations. So no, 2023 or 2024, I tell people, don't worry about 2024. It does not exist. What exists is what's in front of you. Now you have to be strategic about it. And one of those things is we have to get our hands around the, the beast that is the administrative state here. And particularly it's, it's, uh, it's unyielding appetite for money. And that means a confrontation on the debt ceiling here and about the Federal Reserve. I am adamantly and I'm working nonstop behind the scenes to make sure there's any change to our debt ceiling, which is the only piece of real leverage that the deplorables have. Yeah. If we don't raise the debt ceiling, it has to come somehow tied to the control of the uh, of the Federal Reserve. I think this is going to get to be a huge issue in the United Kingdom in the next year or two. I think the United Kingdom, you're going to start asking questions about the Bank of England. How's the Bank of England just totally independent and who actually makes decisions over there and why have they been making decisions? Because when you do the analysis, you're going to understand you in the UK, particularly the middle class and working class, you've been impoverished in 2023, you're going to wake up to the fact that, hey, I'm impoverished. I've worked my entire life. I don't have a pension fund. Because remember, the whole, the whole crisis that took place in the United Kingdom a couple of months ago was about all of your pension funds. All of them were about to go to zero. Okay? Why did they have to have this emergency fusion of money? Because they realized the pension fund managers, in, in order to juice the returns, given the actuarial tables, Right. To be able to make sure you guys have pensions that actually last the 70, 80, 90 years that you live now have had to go to these funky derivative securities of which we have hundreds of trillions of dollars, just like in 2008. All these derivatives have hundreds of trillions of dollars. Why? Because the elites of the world took interest rates to zero over the last 12 or 14 years where they made a fortune. You made nothing. And now you're finding out your pension fund, which you thought was safe. It's my anchor to windward is actually so leveraged up with these funky derivatives that they don't even totally understand that the bottom could fall out when Liz Trust comes out with her, her chancellor of the exchequer with, with basically insanity and all this happy talk about we're going to have growth and we're about growth and, oh, did I tell you, let's have some massive tax cuts because we're about growth. Uh, when you can't pay for what you've already committed to, your pension fund's going to go to zero. And once your pension funds go to zero, you're going to be mad enough to get in the streets and say, hey, we need a revolution. And first off, like, who is the Bank of England and who actually are these guys? 
2023, I think in England, in the United States, people are asking some pretty basic questions like, how does the system actually work, mm. right? Why do I work my ass off? Why do I put my shoulder to the wheel every day? And why I get poor, Why am I getting poor and poor with out-of-control inflation every day that I work hard? And oh, by the way, the little bit of nest egg I got in my house is now dropping 30%, and my pension may not be there because some pension fund manager, in order to get his bonus, has, has leveraged up with a bunch of exotic derivative securities of which he doesn't understand, much less myself, uh, and that's going to go to zero. So you want to have a revolution? Did I mention the 1930s? Okay, <laughs> this, is what this is what happened in the 1930s. It wasn't barbarians. It wasn't street thugs of Hitler and these brown shirts and Mussolini and guys running in black shirts and all that. That all came later. What came first was a financial collapse that had the middle class who had worked their asses off, fought in these wars, done everything they were supposed to do, and kind of were trying to raise their families. Next thing they looked around and they were broke. Okay, you had hyperinflation, you had deflation and crash of assets, and the people that had actually done the middle class and working class families that had played by the rules, served their countries in World War One on both sides of the football, had done everything they were supposed to do, turned around and looked at it, and their world was gone. And, and it kind of said, hey, you know, the world is gone, and maybe I'll listen to these guys over here who are going to tell me how they're going to get my shit back. That's, that's what we're on top of. Th these, these are massive problems. Look, let me be blunt. In the United Kingdom, you guys are really, you have a sovereign debt. You're, I yep. just want to make sure you understand, you're a third world country. Yep. Don't believe what BBC and all this crap they're talking about. You're a third world country. And I can tell you that by the math alone. You have a sovereign debt crisis. If you didn't have the Bank of England stepping in there and bailing it out, which, by the way, it's just all obligations on you. It's actually your money, right? They're just obligating your children and grandchildren to bail out the pension funds today because you have a political class of the Tories that have no earthly idea. They, they, haven't, they might have gone to Oxford and, and majored in politics and philosophy and all this great stuff, but they somehow miss mathematics. And in arithmetic, you guys are, are failing, but you're a third world country. You just are, you get, and you have a sovereign debt crisis. They don't want to talk about that, but that's what you have. That's what 2023 has in store, and by the way, your world is about your personal world is about to get a lot colder, a lot hungrier, a lot more expensive, a lot grimmer. And this is not Steve Bannon with his typical Dick's, uh, you know, Dickens, uh, you know, bah humbug on Christmas. I'm just giving you the way it is, baby. And unfortunately, that's reality. Can I, in our last five minutes, just want to put two things to you. Is that cheery enough? Did I go for Did I deliver for your UK? I love the UK. I always call it our, I call it our mother country just to piss off, just to make sure we're pissing off MSNBC. So for all our brothers in our mother country. It's good to get a hard dose of reality and then you can focus on what you do with that. Just two little things. One is it seems that Democrats have made a cottage industry of voting early not necessarily voting often, um, but getting the mail-ins done. When it comes to election day, they're already yeah. ahead. And, and the second thing is on, on the but, but hang on, hang on. Let, yeah. Let's stay on this because this is very important. I have up on Getter, and I'll make sure you get Sundance over at Conservative Treehouse. And I strongly recommend everybody in your audience read this. He's got a brilliant piece of the difference between ballots and votes. The Democratic Party has set up an incredibly sophisticated system, and I think Labor's going the same way to ba basically have a ballot-generating machine that's tied into social media, TikTok, these young people. And it's not even about issues. It's not about rallies. It has nothing to do with 
It has nothing to do with what we would normally consider politics, right? It is Instagram, it is TikTok, it's all this with this. And they have a ballot generating machine and they're not interested in signature verification or dates or anything like that. And that's why you're seeing in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and even in, in Arizona, what we're up against was Trump's running around having these great rallies and people are going and knocking on doors. There's got to be a complete rethink. We have to go in and, and, and disaggregate their system, see if it's legal or not. And one, figure out how to shut it down. Number two, figure out how to copy it, uh, at least into the legal way. And I think that's getting back to the, I hate to say this. I think the French may be the example here. It hurts me to say that France, as much as I love France and I've lived in Paris and I was partner over at Sakjian, as much as it hurts me to say that we have to take the French as an example, I think we have to take the French example. One day voting, all paper ballots, counted up that night, uh, results delivered by midnight. Yeah, I don't know why you guys can't do a normal election, but that's a whole uh, that's a whole other topic. Just just finally, Steve, just want to ask you about the Gen Z vote because there were two figures I came across in Wisconsin. Youth voter turnout was up three hundred and sixty percent from the last midterm in twenty eighteen, and in Pennsylvania, seventy four thousand young Democrats voted early this year compared to seventeen thousand in twenty eighteen. It seems though that generation does want to be engaged, but whenever you get your student debt cancelled, hey. That's economics for you. So how do the Republicans connect with, I guess, the issues which that generation sees important and instead of waiting for them just to grow up and then become conservatives? So first off, remember, overall, I think in Gen Z, we haven't done that badly, but we look at specific yep. cases. Look, that's the University of Wisconsin. It's the University of Pennsylvania. These university towns are festering as Cambridge and Oxford have become They've gone from fabulous institutions of learning tied to the church to festering sores of the most radical, woke nature of our culture. And they are breeding grounds of this uh, of these uh, uh, available votes to be bought off. Remember, they're taking a trillion dollars. There's anybody in the UK understand what the scam is going on. They're taking a trillion dollars of student debt, really paid to all these deadbeats who are on all these social justice warriors that can't possibly have a real job that can pay it off. They're transferring a trillion dollars to working class people into the middle class, of which the Republicans did a terrible job of explaining. That payoff is what you saw in Pennsylvania and in Wisconsin. And it delivered, although we won the Senate, we kept the Senate seat in a couple of great um, House seats in Wisconsin. We did live, the, we lost the governorship there because of this specific thing. And I think we lost both the Senate and the governorship in, uh, in Pennsylvania because of this. It's a huge deal. That's what we got to read. That's part of the ballot generating machine. The way we get there is let me go back to what I said about 2023. People under 35 years old in our country are nothing more than Russian serfs. Okay. They, they, they are better fed. They're in better shape. They have more access to information uh, than any generation of world history, but they don't own anything and they're not going to own anything. And the reason is because the way the financial system is structured, they, they just give them a little credit card and a little bit of debt and they're like a hamster on the wheel. They're just going, 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 going to pay off that debt. This is the reason the, the single biggest demographic problem we have in America, which many other advanced civilizations have, but ours is a big problem. It's called family formation. Later and later, people are getting married here and having fewer children. Why, are, why is that? Because women are rational human beings. I know people, they're, just, they're rational. And they say, hey, I'm not so sure that guy can actually have a job that can actually provide for me and a family. And so that's why these things get moved out. 
once the younger generation understands it's the structure of the system mm -hmm. and the system is not the second law of thermodynamics this is no this is not a natural property of life on earth this is because it's the way the system works for the wealthy and the super wealthy in our country today we fought a revolution against uh the government that it, it, your audience lives under the british government right uh, the, yeah. really the beginning of the the peak of the empire we fought a revolution to get away from that. Why? And some of the smartest guys in world history did it because we didn't want to be tied to a landed aristocracy in a merchant oligarchy that would control our deal in this wilderness, this primordial wilderness. We wanted to do our own deal. Okay. That's what it came down to. And the reason is we didn't want to just be serfs. We just don't want to be indentured servants, which we would have been. We fought a revolution for that. If they came back today in America today, 0.5% of the citizens, 0.5, control more assets than the bottom 90%. Okay, that's not the poor or the working poor, the bottom 90%. We have a concentration of wealth and power in this country that the revolutionary generation, if they came back, they'd spit on the floor. They go, why did we fight a revolution when you morons have a basically accommodated, and by the way, this is, main, this is the problem with the Republican Party. This is the fight the populist nationalists have every day, is that they are the controlled opposition. We've won more elections than since, since Nixon at every level, and yet we have a country that is an oligarchy. How did that happen? And how it happened is that the controlled opposition went along with it because they're making money off it. Remember, 0.5, by the way, it's not that much better in the United Kingdom, but 0.5% of our nation, of America, control more assets than 90%. People under 35 years old in our country are nothing more than Russian serfs. That's why the World Economic Forum puts out this concept of you're, you're not going to own anything uh, and you're going to be happy about it, right? That's the concept they've got today. So it's, um, it's, uh, we're, in a, uh, we're in a terrible bind. 2023 is going to be an incredibly epic year for politics, economics, and capital markets. And if you want to stay up, tune all this, watch Hearts of Oak and, uh, and War Room. And we thank, by the way, in the United Kingdom, and ourselves are inextricably linked. Last thing, remember what you saw in uh, what you saw in uh, OPEC Plus, right? With the rejection of uh, with the rejection of the West's plan for energy, mm -hmm. is just the global South. The global South now has understood, and this is why Lula winning in Brazil is so catastrophic. The global South understands they have the resources, and we have things called dollars, Federal Reserve notes, and Bank of England notes. And they're saying, I'm not so sure that paper really is that meaningful anymore. So you're going, when I said to refer back to the book, The Dark Valley, part of this is going to be that the, the uh, global South is going to sit there and they're already saying, we control the resources. You control this thing called the financial system. Your financial system is made on a printing press because you're just printing uh, dollar bill, Federal Reserve notes and, 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 and British pounds to trillions of dollars to continue to bail yourself out where you're devaluing that currency to me. So I think what I'm gonna do is charge more for the rubber, I'm gonna charge more for the tin and the copper and the oil and the gas and all that in the food production and you guys can suck on it. So this is all gonna come to a head. It's coming to a part of a head in 2023. That will lay the predicate for 2024.
Steve, thank you for your cheery outlook. Uh, our viewers can catch Warham tonight after this goes out. This was recorded two hours before, so we are out at 8pm UK time, 3pm Eastern time, and of course two hours later, Warham, 5pm Eastern, 10pm UK. You can catch an updated version, updated analysis of what exactly has been happening, whether they've managed to count those last few votes in different places in the state. So Steve, thank you for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Love Hearts of Oak and uh, watch you guys all the time. So thank you. Great news and uh, great reporting from the United Kingdom. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.